Hello, friends, and welcome back to the Healthier Together podcast. I'm your host, Liz Moody, and I'm a best-selling author and longtime journalist. This podcast is all about helping you live your healthiest, happiest life, whether we're learning how to make our pets live as long as possible, hearing about the pros and cons of having children, or getting science-backed blood sugar balancing hacks for more energy. And yes, those are all real episodes, so if any of those topics sound good to you, scroll on back in the archives. Today, I am so excited to welcome two guests to the podcast, Dr. Leroy Hood and Dr. Nathan Price. Dr. Hood is a world-renowned scientist. He's a member of the National Academy of Sciences, the National Academy of Engineering, and the National Academy of Medicine. He's received 18 honorary degrees, published more than 850 peer-reviewed articles, currently holds 36 patents, and has received numerous awards, including the National Medal of Science in 2011. Scientific American named him one of the 10 most influential people in the field of biotechnology, and he's played a role in founding 15 biotechnology companies, founded and chaired the Department of Molecular Biotechnology at the University of Washington, and is now carrying out studies in Alzheimer's disease, cancer, and wellness, including a 1 million patient genome project. It is quite the impressive resume. I'm almost out of breath just from saying all of that. Dr. Price, our other guest for this episode, serves as a co-director of the Hood Price Lab for Systems Biomedicine. He's a longevity researcher and the chief scientific officer at Thorne Health Tech. He's been named one of the 10 emerging leaders in health and medicine by the National Academy of Medicine. He serves on the Board of Life Sciences of the National Academies of Sciences, Engineering, and Medicine, and he has won numerous awards for his incredible research. Their new book, which they co-authored, is called The Age of Scientific Wellness. It was released this past year, and it outlines their findings on living a longer, healthier life, as well as what the future of medicine will look like, which is what we are going to get into in this episode. There are so many amazing new things coming down the pipeline in terms of how we take care of our bodies, feel our best, beat diseases, and live longer. And a lot of the cool stuff is actually available right now, and it's a lot more affordable and accessible than you might think. You just have to know about it. This is an episode about where health and wellness is going, but also the cutting edge of where it is and what we can be doing to improve how we feel today. We get into so many interesting topics, including what our lifespan and healthcare will look like in 10, 20, and 100 years, the ways healthcare will become more accessible for everyone, how to use your wearables, genetic testing, and more to detect and even treat disease, the daily lifestyle changes that literally decrease your biological age, the technologies that have reversed cancer, avoided Alzheimer's, and prevented autoimmune conditions how to actually use DNA testing to change your health and life, like what to do with all of that information that you're getting, why you shouldn't be anxious about doing genetic testing, even for Alzheimer's, which health tests are truly worth your time and money and exactly what to ask for, how cancer treatment is likely to completely change in the next 10 years, and so much more. I would love to hear your thoughts and your biggest takeaways as you're listening to the episode, so definitely screenshot and tag me. I am at Liz Moody on Instagram. Two final things. We are a little over a month away from the launch of my new book, which is wild to actually say out loud. It's called 100 Ways to Change Your Life, and I promise it is the most pragmatic, doable, fun-to-read book you will ever buy. 
When I was reading the audiobook, the producers kept commenting on how not wishy-washy the content was. This isn't a rah-rah self-help book like, you've got the power. All you need to do is love yourself. No, it's like, here's what the science says about loving yourself, and here are the action tips that you can do today to love yourself so that you can see real results. We also get into gut health, longevity, career success, sticking to habits, achieving goals, and so much more. Pre-orders are incredibly important to authors. They essentially tell the publishing house how much power to put behind a book. And also that means the book will come to your door on pub day and honestly sometimes a few days early, which is fun. I'm actually giving away $1,000 to an airline of your choice if you pre-order just as a little extra incentive. So if you are thinking of buying the book, please do it now. Just go to 100waystochangeyourlife.com. That is 100waystochangeyourlife.com. Also, this is officially the last week you'll be seeing the title Healthier Together when you search for the pod. That is right. Next week, we will officially become the Liz Moody Podcast. The content is not going to change at all. The podcast name is just going to reflect the scope of everything that we talk about on here. It is so much more than what a lot of people would consider a health podcast, and I am so excited for this change to officially take place. So look for the Liz Moody podcast in your feed. There is no need to resubscribe. Just do not unsubscribe when you see our new name and our cover art, which is really, really pretty. I am so excited to evolve and grow this this podcast even more and take it to even more exciting, interesting places. Okay, let's get into it with Dr. Hood and Dr. Price. Lee and Nathan, welcome to the podcast. I'm so excited to have you both here. I would love to start out in a super brief way just to get us excited. What does the future of healthcare really look like in 10, 20, 30, and maybe 100 years from now? My feeling is that we'll have devices which will let us assess our health trajectory and optimize it, leading to a health span that will take us into our 90s, mentally alert, physically capable, totally, hopefully, engaged with the world and so forth. And that the devices necessary to do this will all be capable of being used at home. So your entire health is going to be directed from your home and will be an integral part of your ordinary everyday life. We'll be able to follow your health trajectory and optimize it at every step. We have healthcare today, which is largely disease care. And then over the next five to 10 years, as we've been talking about in the age of scientific wellness, we're really moving more towards care being more focused on increasing health span it moving more into your home, right? COVID really helped accelerate this. So this is now not that far off. There's a big push in that direction. When you start talking about 50 or 100 years out, 100 years out becomes quite interesting, right? Because in that world, AIs are now incredibly well-developed. We've probably made huge breakthroughs on understanding aging and how to slow it down. We've made big breakthroughs in hopefully a pretty massive eradication of chronic diseases. That's what happened in the previous 100 years with infectious diseases that were largely eliminated in uh, at least many of them in large industrial countries. We think that if we adopt the principles that we talk about in the age of scientific wellness, that we'll be able to really make a massive difference in terms of that chronic disease so that your health span 
starts to really approximate your full lifespan. Do you foresee these results being available for everybody or just for a small select group of rich people? We'd argue we're going to be designing them so everybody can be a part of it. So the vision really is to democratize healthcare and to bring to everyone, initially in the States and later across the world, the benefits of a healthcare. The argument is health is fundamental to so many components of our life, your early growth and development, your education, the job that you carry out, uh, how you move into old age and the options that you have there. In every way, we'd like to see everyone be given an equal opportunity to make the choice. But the important point is your health is really governed by your own will. That is, you have to direct the health in appropriate ways, and you have to be committed to the necessary tasks that will come from being required to generate your health data and to analyze your health data, and then to come up with a whole prioritized list of actionable possibilities that can improve wellness and or avoid disease. The big goal in the future is to take healthcare, which today, as Nathan said, is entirely virtually oriented toward disease, and replace it with one that's oriented toward wellness and prevention. Our argument is that wellness and prevention will, one, increase enormously the quality of health care for every individual, and two, will lead to significant savings in health care as we move into the future. So there'll be every reason for this transformation in healthcare from a disease to a wellness and prevention orientation. We're going to talk about all of these things you can be tracking and the things you can do with that data and all of that for everybody who has the access, the time, all of that. But I am curious if this is going to be our personal responsibility in some ways, what will people who don't have the time because they're working various jobs, what will people who maybe don't have access to good doctors because of where they live, they don't have access to the healthy food they need, et cetera, how is that democratization of healthcare going to look in practice? This is a major area that we're super interested in because if you really dive in on your health and you're trying to understand it right from a molecular level and your microbiome and all these things that I'm sure we're going to get into as we talk, it can become quite complicated. The onus is really on those of us that are developing what we call the scientific wellness industry, which is basically a focus on wellness, but with the same types of depth that we might think of in precision medicine. We have to take that complexity into ourselves so that the algorithms that we have uh, behind testing that are giving actionable recommendations to people, that complexity is dealt with inside so that it becomes simple for the person to action. So this means building out programs that they can take advantage of, tests that people can do that are quite simple, products that are delivered to their home, et cetera, et cetera. It's really building that ecosystem to make actioning on improving your health as easy as possible. And do you see the onus of that being on the individual in the future? Like, oh, I need to figure out what trackers I need. Or do you picture an individual in the future going to their doctor and saying, I'm not feeling well in this way. And instead of doing the test they're doing now, maybe they're doing this completely different set of tests. 
that is going to be an initiative that Phenome Health is pushing today. Phenome Health is a nonprofit, and one of its major foci is to create the Human Phenome Initiative. That is, all the measurements that allow us to follow how we transition from birth all the way up to an older person. And measuring all of those transitions, and those are the phenomic transitions, is governed by your genome, by your behavior, and by your environment. So you have an enormous impact on all of these kinds of factors. We're pushing the idea of a second genome-like project, a million persons that will be analyzed over a 10-year period, and that's to develop the technologies and to optimize a particular pathway that in the most economical way leads to this idealized health that we've talked about. From a program like this, we can come up with basic algorithms that will let you in very simple ways optimize health around your brain, which is important, around your body, which is important, and around your gut microbiome, which really plays a central role in your health. And this will all be automatically integrated into the ordinary things you do, your diet, your exercise, your sleep, and your ability to deal with stress, a very common elements of fundamental health today will be able to optimize your approaches and individualize them. Each of us is different, and we each need to take unique pathways to the optimization of our health. You say that you've already seen some really startling results. You say that you've seen diabetes reversed, cancers eliminated, Alzheimer's avoided, autoimmune conditions prevented. I would love for you to share on a specific basis how you've seen some of these results happen and what's been used to achieve them. We've taken thousands of people through programs in scientific wellness where we can look at exactly that. Some of those that became really interesting, I'll just give one example of a woman that had worked with us. And we were measuring, in this case, a pretty nonspecific kind of measurement, uh, cortisol levels, but just stress in her body. And one particular month, it jumps massively high. You measure this four times during the day, and she has this huge jump. And a bunch of other biomarkers are just shifting all over the place. So we couldn't tell from just the data alone exactly what was happening in this case. But you could tell that her body was in panic mode. It was in some sort of serious stress. So anyway, her coaches worked with her and she said, well, you know, I have a little bit of gastric distress, but not very much. I'm having a little bit. Anyway, encouraged her to get uh, looked at and get into the healthcare system in this case. She went to a doctor that was specialized in the colon. And the first doctor she went to said, this is all in your head. But it wasn't in her head. It was actually data from her body. But she went and got a second opinion turned out that she had stage three colon cancer, very large, and was on the verge of going metastatic. Once it goes metastatic, you may die, right? You're in a serious situation at that point. So they were able to get her an emergency procedure, cut it out, saved her life. That was one example where we could see that, and there's many, many more. But the notion is that if you're monitoring these things, there are signals that happen and we've looked at about 170 different diseases that came up in these thousands of people that we'd monitored. And what you find is that there are these signals that come up before. There's coordinated elements that are changing. 
And what we have to do to, to make this more feasible to stop disease before it starts broadly in the population is to amass lots of information starting from wellness so that we learn how to better and better read those signals and also to go more and more precise with how much they're telling us and what we can do in advance of those. And we've made a lot of progress on that. And the point I'd really emphasize is if she'd done what her first doctor suggested, go home and forget about it, she almost certainly would have been done today. You never want to ignore signals that are screaming at you, something is really wrong. Measuring many different aspects of the body gives us the chance to assess all the major organs and to assess your immune system and your energy metabolism and all of these different kinds of things. But if they send signals, you've got to have them interpreted, listen to them and respond. In that example, she had elevated cortisol. I don't think I have ever had a doctor ask if I want my cortisol tested in my entire life. Are there tests that you think that we should be asking our doctors for at present that can give us information we really need to make these types of decisions with? There's a whole host of testing that really matters in that way. Things that you might want to get access to that your doctor probably doesn't do. One is a gut microbiome test. The microbiome is relatively new. In recent years, we've really learned a lot about it. And you can get a tremendous amount of information that's very relevant to your health. 60 to 70 million Americans have gut health problems. And some of them may not even know it. I know for myself personally, because I've had these on and off over the years as well. And sometimes when I get myself to a really good place of wellness, or maybe I quit using prebiotics and things that I like to do, and I go back, I remember, oh, yeah, I used to feel this way all the time. And I forgot I'd gotten better. Thorn has a gut health test on the microbiome. There's some other good ones that are out there. If you want to measure these, you can get access to these thousands of species. It can inform you about areas that are related to your digestion. It relates to, for example, some of the neurotransmitters that your brain uses like serotonin, mostly made in your gut. You can see if that's happening. There are different nutrients or vitamins that your body needs that are made by microbes in your gut. You can see if that's happening. Cardiovascular risk factors like TMAO, that is a process of having bacteria in your gut that turn part of your food into a toxin that you don't want, and on and on and on. That's like one big category. And then there's lots of blood tests that you can do as well that can get access to you know, broad-ranging information. We have a biological age test that uses 40 different clinical labs that you can do measurements on. There's just a whole host of things that if you have the right healthcare provider, or even if you want to do some of these direct-to-consumer tests, you can get a lot of valuable information that helps you to guide your health because the healthcare system is not completely aligned with your health goals in terms of prevention, right? It's a difficult system because the people who are entrusted with our health only get paid well if we're sick. It's not a total alignment. And your insurance company is not totally aligned with you either. When you look at those things, you're the only one that is totally aligned with your health. So it makes a lot of sense to start owning a number of these measurements and following, as long as you can get really high quality, scientifically validated advice. Nathan and I started a company called Aerovail, which over a four-year period was directed at, quote, scientific wellness and at taking the data that came from each individual, analyzing it, and bringing back to them lists of actionable possibilities that could improve wellness or avoid disease. 
because we had people that ranged from 21 to 90, we were able to bin them into 10-year categories and analyze how these people's ability to control the expression of analytes in the blood proteins and nutrients and clinical chemistries, how that changed. And it turned out that as you got older, there was kind of a linear loss of your control of the expression of those chemicals into the blood. From that, we could derive an algorithm that gave you your biological age. So that's the age your body says you are as opposed to the age your birthday says you are. The lower it is, the better off you're aging. And what we were able to show for the women in Airvale is every year they stayed in this wellness program, they lost a year and a half of biological age. So over the four-year period, that was six years. And every year men stayed in, they lost about 0.8 years per year in the program. So that was of the order of three years or so. And in fact, Nathan had a really dramatic response of losing 10 years of biological age over that four-year period. What is clear from this measurement is, A, it's a good assessment of wellness, and B, it shows you that you can actually change the slope of your aging. And what we can do now is use the core components in that algorithm to not only get your general biological age, but look at the age of major organs, the liver, the kidney, the immune system, and the like. And we can also offer suggestions for how you change your global aging rate, but also for how you can change your organs rate as well. So it gives you a powerful adjunct to being able to decrease the rate at which you age. And because aging is the major factor in most chronic disease transmissions, if we really slow a person's aging down, and particularly if we combine it with the other features of scientific wellness, maybe we can, for many people, avoid transition into chronic diseases. And that's a really exciting idea that's being explored now. What are some of those recommendations when you are trying to lower your biological age in this sense? What are some of the shifts that you're recommending? Metabolic health is a really important one. Diabetes adds six years to biological age. So that's one of the biggest things. You want to control your glucose. Some of the things that you can do there are lifestyle kind of things. But if we're going beyond that, uh, you can look at particular supplements that are useful for this. Thorne has one called Metabolic Health, which is a uh, bergamot and curcumin. You can do uh, things like berberine has been really well studied as an analog of metformin, which is a drug-based version. You can also do the drug if your doctor prescribes that to you. You can wear a continuous glucose monitor and you can learn in detail how different foods cause your blood to spike. You can learn how your blood is responding in terms of that. There are companies, January AI levels, where people can get that kind of information, monitor it, learn how that works. You can look at lipids, right, which can be a contributor. That's a big factor. Hormones, DHEA, which we use in the uh, biological age test that Lee was alluding to that we co-developed. 
DHEA is a pool for both testosterone and estrogen. You can work on improving that if it's low. You can take that as a supplement or you can work on you know, increasing your muscle mass and just building out more from a lifestyle point of view and optimizing your gut, which we already talked about. What do you guys do? What are your wellness routines on a daily basis? I think exercise is one of the most powerful routines and makes the biggest difference in anti-aging and avoiding things like diabetes and other kinds of chronic diseases. So I exercise probably 40 minutes a day with push-ups and sit-ups and balancing exercises and deep muscle exercises. And then I typically walk to work, which is a mile either way, and do it very vigorously. And that keeps me uh, in pretty good shape. I'm very careful about my diet. The weight really makes a big difference in how you feel, how energetic you are, and how you act. Diet, I think, is really important. It's all the things that you've read about, lots of vegetables and lots of fruit, lots of fiber. Red meats should be eaten infrequently. Fish is good and so forth. I wear an aura ring, so that gives me my heart rate variability, which gives me a sense of the balance of your autonomic system, which is peaceful and relaxed and casual, as opposed to your sympathetic system, which is stress and danger and response to pressure and things like that. And clearly, you want to keep the balance in the relaxed area, that is, with a higher heart rate uh, variability. I do also take supplements. I have a really interesting deficiency of vitamin D that initially came not only from eating enough foods with it or being in the sun enough, but I have two genetic variants that block the uptake of vitamin D. So to get it up to a normal level, I have to take very large doses. Knowing these key nutrients and where you're deficient and replacing them, I think is a very important part of it. Vitamin D is very important. Vitamin C is very important to keep your levels high. I kind of have two different days. I have the days when I come into work in New York and I have the days when I stay at home. My first meal, if I'm at home, is basically the same thing every day. I'll have plain Greek yogurt with lots of blueberries and a little bit of oats and shaved almonds. There's a rule of thumb that I find incredibly useful. And I just got this from a nutritionist, but it's made a big difference for me, which is if you look at whatever you're eating and you just look at the number of calories, so let's say I eat about 300 calories of Greek yogurt in the morning. You look at how much protein is in those calories. And for Greek yogurt, that would be 60. What you're looking is that first number. So at 300, you drop a zero. So what you're trying to get is like 30 grams of protein and something that's 300 calories would be a high protein. I try to aim for that roughly. That's a good target. So if I start with that Greek yogurt in the morning, I start at a ratio of two, right? The six to the three, like right off the bat. I will often in the morning also put collagen into coffee. It makes it a little bit creamier. It's not much of a taste factor, at least to me, but I get an extra about 20 grams of protein. On days that I go into the office, I'll walk for an hour and then I do yoga and this seven minute workout in the morning before I go. So I get about a half hour yoga, about a seven minute workout, and then 
you know, an hour of walking. So that's a pretty good on a work day. But I'm in my office right now. I have uh, exercise bands in the office. So I will do that about 15 minutes a day, usually in like three, like five minute periods. I find that super useful just as part of my daily routine. You get a little tired sitting around. I enjoy that. I'll just do shoulder presses or bicep curls or tricep, you know, do that throughout the day. I feel slightly odd because in our new offices are all glass. So everyone kind of watched me do it. I used to do it behind closed doors, which was easier. I felt better about it. You're probably inspiring people. (laughs) That's certainly possible. On days I stay home, then I've got a dedicated weight room in my house. So I'll do like heavier lifting or runs and things like that on days that I stay home when I don't have the walk. And then other little things that I do that I find really useful. So in every room that I have where there is a television, there's also a small personal trampoline. And then I also keep like grip strength exercises near places that if I'm watching a show or something, I'll do that. I often just try to work as much of these kind of smaller things into my daily routine on top of going out and exercising. Because I am a big believer that it's not just about the exercise or the workout that you go do, as important as that is. It's really movement, right? Standing up, have a standing desk. Lee's really been kind of a paragon of health throughout his life. And I really started from a bad place, I'll say. You know, so I've been working my way up from the standpoint that it, you know, in the not so distant past, couldn't straighten my legs without pain. I couldn't stand up without pain. I had horrible sciatica. I was pre-diabetic. I had all these issues because I had become a computational biologist and I was very dedicated as a scientist, but that just meant that I sat on my butt and had very low movement for probably about a decade. And I suffered immensely for that. It was kind of a process for me to build up some muscle mass because that had atrophied really badly. Trying to get myself into a good exercise routine was hard because I had horrible sciatic pain, right? I'd go out, I'm like, I'm going to go running and I would instead be on the ground with electric shock pain, you know, for a few minutes until that resolved. There's all kinds of stuff like that. And I bring that up because there's always a tendency to project this like, oh, everything is always awesome. But there's also the fact that for me, the wellness journey has made an incredible opportunity and I'm working to get to where I ultimately want to be. But man, the steps like moving up have been incredibly useful. And as Lee mentioned, my biological age dropping from being right around my chronologic age to 10 years younger, all those kind of elements have been very, very motivating and made a big difference in my health and energy and cognitive clarity and all those kind of things. One additional point I will add, I really try and get roughly every hour, 250 steps. I think just getting out for a few minutes and getting that exercise you know, makes you alert, gets you going again, keeps you from getting sleepy if you didn't get that much rest the night before. When I walk in, I use grippers for the entire mile both ways. And as you age, one of the things that you really have to watch, and it's very hard to reverse, is the loss of muscle cells. And it's the exercise that can keep those strong and vital. And One of the classic tests for older folks is to see how strong their grip is. So keeping your hand as well as your body really strong paves the way for consciously trying to keep as much muscle mass as you can as you age. 
I absolutely love a low-lift daily habit that has a big payoff over time. It's why I am always asking podcast guests for little hacks and tips that we can all do easily to live a better life without sacrificing a ton of time or energy. And that's why I love AG1, the daily foundational nutrition supplement that supports whole body health. I know there are a lot of people who wonder if AG1 is overhyped because so many people talk about it, but in this case, it's just one of those things that's super hyped because it's actually that good. I gave AG1 a try because I wanted a single solution that supports my entire body and covers my nutritional bases every day, no matter how the rest of the day goes, especially for gut health and immune support. I just mix a scoop of AG1 into my water. You can also mix it into juice or a smoothie, but I genuinely love the taste, so I go with water. And boom, you have this incredible insurance that you've gotten your foundational nutrition in from that one-minute habit in your day. I'm always trying to eat veggie-packed, nutritionally dense meals, but I am not perfect, so AG1 helps support me with 75 vitamins, minerals, whole foods, or superfoods, and adaptogens to cover the bases. I love how it gives me some gentle energy right after I drink it without any jitters so it doesn't stoke my anxiety like caffeine. It gives me a ton of mental clarity and clears any sluggishness or brain fog that I have, which is why even though a lot of people start their day with it, I actually prefer to drink mine in the early afternoon when I have that 3 p.m. slump. And it is not a placebo effect. AG1 has so many ingredients that have been extensively researched for their brain health effects like rhodiola root dry extract, hawthorn berry, and rosemary to name just a few. It also has less than one gram of sugar, no GMOs, and no artificial anything, and they are third-party tested, which is always so important to look for. So if you want to take ownership of your health, it starts with AG1. Try AG1 and get a one-year supply of their amazing vitamin D3, K2, and 10 free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase. This is a limited time offer with double the travel packs that I normally get to give you guys, and the travel packs are so freaking handy, so jump on it while it's still live. Go to drinkag1.com slash healthier together. That's drinkag1.com slash healthier together. My time is so valuable to me, and when there's an opportunity to simplify a process that normally takes me hours to do, I will always take advantage of that. So I have to tell you about something that's made my life so much easier. I'm talking about ZocDoc, a platform that helps you find and book healthcare providers that are the perfect fit for you. ZocDoc is the only free app that lets you find and book doctors who are patient-reviewed, take your insurance, and are available when you need them, and treat almost every condition under the sun. Here's how it works. Whenever you need any kind of medical care, you go directly to the ZocDoc app or website and search the condition, procedure, or doctor that you're looking for, including specialties ranging from primary care physicians to dermatologists to neurosurgeons and more. You just enter in your location, the time you're looking for an appointment, and your insurance carrier, and ZocDoc displays a list of all of the potential doctors you can book an appointment with. You book your appointment right on the ZocDoc app so the process is quick and seamless. Using ZocDoc has been amazing for Nomad Life. It's an easy way to find a reputable doctor that can actually take me as a new patient without having to wait for six months. You can see right on the app when the doctors are available for their next appointment, and you can read all of their reviews to find out what their approach to medicine is, what their bedside manner is like, and more. I scour those reviews too. I feel like ZocDoc is literally the only place that you can get a really good sense of what a doctor is like so you don't end up wasting your time with a terrible experience where you don't feel heard or they don't actually take your insurance so you end up paying an arm and a leg or all of the other horror stories that we're all unfortunately way too familiar with. When you're not feeling your best and just trying to hold it together on top of everything else you have going on in your life, 
Finding great care shouldn't take up all of your energy. That's where ZocDoc comes in. Book an appointment with a few taps on their app and start feeling better faster. Consider this a sign to do a little life admin hour and book all of those medical appointments that you've been putting off, your dermatologist visit for your skin cancer check, your gynecologist, your GP. This is real self-care, friends, like actually taking care of your health. Go to ZocDoc.com slash Liz and download the ZocDoc app for free. Then find and book a top-rated doctor today. Many are available within 24 hours. That is Z-O-C-D-O-C dot com slash L-I-Z. ZocTalk.com slash Liz. No, really. Go do it right now and then come back and listen to the rest of the episode. I want you to take care of yourself. You will thank me later. I love that. Nate, you mentioned protein. There's a lot of debate in the wellness community about high protein, low protein. How are we thinking about protein in terms of aging? People have very varied thoughts. What does the data show in your opinion about the role of protein and how much we should be aiming for in terms of living our longest, healthiest lives? The data that I've seen, you know, and I know there's a lot of different opinions on this. There are different things that can work. I think that higher protein diets are really useful. And I'm not talking necessarily about going to some massively extreme level. That rule of thumb that I mentioned, which is a little bit high, although it works, I think, particularly well when you're in a calorie deficit, but you really want to get about one gram of protein per pound of your target weight, your kind of lean weight. In my experience, that if you're able to hit that minimum protein target, one, you're so much less hungry, it makes it a lot more sustainable. And it helps support that muscle loss because as you get older, on average, you're going to lose 0.5 to 1% of your muscle mass every year if you don't do something serious to fight against that. And even if you do, you're still losing some. That intake of protein is incredibly useful. I would never go under that myself if I could avoid it. Okay. That's really helpful. Going back into some other different types of testing, what do you guys think about Pronovo or other sort of early cancer screening testing? There is a absolutely fascinating cancer assay that uses epigenetics. That's the modification of your DNA. So it blanks out certain kinds of expression. But the claim is that you can measure epigenetic factors, and this gives you insights into whether you might have any one of 40 or so different cancers. And this was an enormously exciting idea, and it was an idea that led Illumina to pay an awful lot of money for the company that generated this kind of possibility. What I do understand is there are starting to be some questions about how efficient it is, whether you really can detect all of these cancers. But my own feeling is that there are real signals there, and it will be useful for at least some kind of cancers. I think the confusion needs to be cleared. I can't say where it is really in the whole rubric of should you use this as part of your annual routine and things like that. It's probably safe to wait a little bit and hear what it does successfully so that you know what you're looking at. But anyway, it's a very exciting new approach to the early detection of cancer, and it's worth following very closely. 
I would love to get into DNA testing. What are your thoughts on the DNA testing that is available to consumers? And do you have favorite companies to use for it? And is there specific data that you find especially meaningful that we should be looking out for? There's a lot of DNA testing that I think is really helpful. And, you know, I am a fan of it. There's obviously the really big companies, 23andMe, Ancestry.com, and places like that, where millions of people have done a DNA analysis. One company who has reports that I like quite a lot are Self-Decode, which will give you quite a lot of actionable information off of that. Doctors use this kind of report. 3x4 Genetics has built a nice interface and, and been able to give a lot of that kind of information. One of the places where I think genomics becomes super actionable is when you take genomics and you map it in with blood measures or other kind of dynamic changes. So one paper that Lee and I did with colleagues a few years ago showed that when we took people through a wellness program and we evaluated whether or not they could do things like lower LDL cholesterol, and there's been lots of studies that try to do this. Can you buy lifestyle lower LDL cholesterol? And you get kind of a mixed bag. Some people do it, some people don't, and you say like the overall signal is kind of weak. But when we had all these different types of data, including genetics, what we found was that there was a subset of people that would respond very well in terms of lowering LDL cholesterol and others wouldn't. And the main variable was you can use your genome to predict your level of LDL cholesterol. So if you were high and your genome predicted that you were high, you couldn't change. It didn't lower by lifestyle. But if your genome predicted low and you were high, then you could. So the whole element of predictability was in the gap, the difference between what your genome said and what your actual value was. Now, the reason I bring that up is because if you look at medicine today, where we give millions of people statins and we're evaluating things like LDL cholesterol, then we ignore what I would argue is maybe the most important fact which is what the genome prediction is because most of medicine ignores the genome still. So that's super important. And these are not small numbers. The people who could change it in terms of the gap was top 40% of the population. And the bottom 40% of the population couldn't. So you're talking about millions and millions of people. Now, that was also true for HDL cholesterol. Only the top 20% in terms of the size of this gap were able to raise their HDL cholesterol, so-called good cholesterol. Hemoglobin A1C, a marker for diabetes. Again, the genome allows you to predict which people at the same level of hemoglobin A1C would be likely to transition to diabetes versus not. In that case, we know the mechanism, or at least a mechanism, because your red blood cells circulate in your body about 120 days. But some people might be more like 130, others might be more like 110. And that's encoded genetically. Since hemoglobin A1C, this marker is the protein and you have these sugars, glycosylations, these sugars that come on, and you look at the aggregate of that over time to see if you are at risk for diabetes. Well, the longer they're in there, the more time they have to accumulate. If you're on one side of the genomic signal, then the same level of marker would be a warning sign for you and not for somebody else. So there's many things that you can get into then in terms of interpreting your blood measures in the context of your physiology that you can only do for genetics. That we think is a really important aspect. So what I would say concisely is there are genes that predispose to cancer. And certainly if you know you have those gene variants, you want to be very careful. 
Lynch syndrome predisposes you to colon cancer, and BRCA2 predisposes you to ovarian and breast cancer and so forth. But in all cases, it doesn't necessarily guarantee you'll get the cancer. An interesting alternative is in studying people in the Airvale program over that four-year period, what we discovered were that there were about 200 of them that transitioned from wellness to disease. And actually, the very first one we found was a woman that transitioned to stage four pancreatic cancer about two years into the program. What we did was go back and look at her blood draws six months apart prior to her diagnosis and show that she had five proteins whose levels were elevated strikingly, and three of them were actually a part of disease-perturbed networks common to stage four pancreatic cancer. So two years before she got a detectable disease, you saw changes in the cancer. And what's ideal about this, and it's something we're going to be studying in the future, is if we could reverse the cancer at that early stage, you'd never get the clinically manifest disease. We went on to look at 10 additional people that transitioned to cancer too and found roughly the same kind of thing. And the detection was a year before they got the clinical disease up to three or four years before they got the disease. So we believe that if you follow these blood analytes regularly, they'll give us clues about virtually any of your transitions into chronic disease. And in the future, we'll be able to prevent you from getting those chronic disease by the appropriate preventive actions or the appropriate therapeutic reactions. It's an exciting alternative to just DNA analysis and risk. Okay. I have a lot of questions. First of all, if you are a person who is not genetically going to respond to the cholesterol treatment or the lifestyle interventions, are you just screwed? Not necessarily. It does get really interesting. So if you want to lower LDL cholesterol, the statins do work, right? So you can lower that. It turns out this was another paper we published last year. If you have a certain kind of microbiome, statins are double as effective for those people than it does for the rest of the population. It's about a quarter of the population. That has a big effect. But you can lower by statin or some sort of intervention. So what we showed, though, is that if you want to just move things by lifestyle intervention, what you can do with this kind of genetic test is you can look at all your blood measures. And then for all the ones where you can do a genetic prediction, you can rank order them from where you have the largest gap down to the smallest gap. And what it will tell you is here are the things that if you focus on, they'll be very likely to change. So you'll be likely to make progress on those measures. Whereas if you're focused elsewhere, you won't. What's so fascinating then is that the genomics, when you tie it together with the other data types, it opens up this personalized map for you of where you'll get return on your health investment. If I put effort here, you'll see output. But it doesn't necessarily mean that you won't be able to make an impact, but you will probably have to hit it harder 
with something that might be a pharmaceutical or maybe there's other things. The other element, though, is in some cases, you should just be treated differently. So think about the example I gave of hemoglobin A1C. That's related to the residence time of your red blood cells. So in that sense, if your red blood cells tend to stay in your body longer than the average person, and you have a hemoglobin A1C, let's say that's borderline pre-diabetic, it's not that your problem is you can't lower it. In that case, it's that your steady state should be higher. The range is wrong for you. So you should be thinking about a personalized range. So we don't know the answers on all these things yet, but there's both those factors, right? One, you're dealt a bad hand and you just have to play with that. But the flip side is that a lot of these ranges, they're just developed from population averages, sometimes on studies on relatively small numbers of people a long time ago, and they just might not be relevant to you. That's what we're learning to personalize through the genome so that you're now looking at you as your own control. What is your body physiology? What should it look like as opposed to how do you fit into the average? Is there anything that you'd say to somebody who wants to get their DNA tested, but they're scared of getting results that frighten them, like having a gene that can indicate a greater chance of disease down the road? That's really an excellent question. So we now have polygenic scores that actually account for up the order of 150 different disease phenotypes and actually wellness phenotypes. And what that means is if you have your genome sequenced, you can actually look at these polygenic scores and you can determine your risk, whether very low or very high for that phenotype. And for people where it's high risk for disease, they may have reservations about not knowing about that or reservations about worrying about if they do know, they're going to get neurotic about it. You could have these things done and give them to your physician and have him tell you about them as it becomes relevant to treatments that he can use to deal with those different kind of genetic risks. Or alternatively, we should really be educating the populace about genomics and polygenic scores because knowing about what your risks are means you can take personal responsibility for identifying when we discover new approaches to things you're at high risk for that you can use. I'd add one thing to that, which is probably the disease to which this is applied the most is Alzheimer's disease. When genetic testing was first listed, it was in like all the news reports. They'd always say this, like, and you might not want to get your genome tested because you'll find out you have Alzheimer's and there's nothing you can do. And it was just repeated over and over and over again. And it's largely nonsense. And the reason that I say that is when they say that there's nothing you can do for Alzheimer's, what is meant by that is there is no drug that has a major effect on Alzheimer's. And you talk about, you know, are you going to have psychological stress from this? Turns out that for most genomic testing, there isn't a long-lasting effect of that kind. Like Robert Greene at Harvard's done these really big studies on analyzing that, but you can make that determination for yourself. But for Alzheimer's, and Lee and I published, you know, an op-ed piece in the LA Times recently that went through this. But if you're thinking about something like the treatment of Alzheimer's once your brain has decayed, the difficulty of thinking about bringing your neurons back and interconnecting them the way that they were before. And doing that with a small molecule, like a drug, 
completely fanciful. I can't even imagine a world in which that is true. You need a lot more information to put your brain back together the way that it was. But for prevention, which basically means keeping your neurons alive, that is a much easier problem. And there's tons of things you can do, some of them that are very simple. Uh, take vitamin D. Low vitamin D is a very high risk factor for Alzheimer's disease. There's big hazard ratios that are associated with that, and there's even a known mechanism. Randomized controlled trials haven't held up that well on vitamin D, although I will say that we have gone through and we've done a very deep analysis on those things. We don't think any of them were powered to see anything anyway, so we'd say that's not actually tested. We could dive into that in a long, long way if we wanted to. But that's a big factor. Phosphatidylcholine, which you can get in eggs or as a supplement. People who eat diets rich in phosphatidylcholine get Alzheimer's on average three years later than people who don't. And again, known mechanism. Homocysteine and vitamin Bs. Tommy Wood at University of Washington, he just did a whole thing on this. It makes a big difference in the delaying of dementia. Exercise is very protective for dementia because you want to keep oxygenation levels in your brain high as you get older. The decay of oxygenation in your brain is one of the things that leads to not keeping enough energy. APOE has a big role in that too, which we could dive into if we want to. In the press, too often we have given this notion of that there's nothing you can do for these things other than just be stressed out so don't learn, when in fact that is central to the entire point of our book, you know, The Age of Scientific Wellness, which is that healthcare is so focused on care after illness and the administration of drugs that it equates there is no drug that you can treat this disease with after the fact as meaning there's nothing you can do to prevent the disease. And that is not even remotely true. And we've all known this since we were three years old. It's the story of Humpty Dumpty. Once the egg has fallen and broken, it's hard to put together. Keeping the egg on the wall, that's easy. And Alzheimer's exactly the same. I was reflecting recently on what a weird rhyme that was, actually. (laughs) It is a weird rhyme. (laughs) It's like a weird thing we're teaching children about. Are there any other data from DNA tests that you think people are interpreting wrong or taking the wrong actions for? There are really five or six different classes of things that you can do. And most large clinical centers are doing none of them, or at best, if you are doing maybe one of these. So the first is the American College of Medical Genetics has actually identified 82 variants in your genome that have actionable possibilities that if you know have the variant, you can do something very effective for it. And an example of this is something called malignant hyperthermia. This is a gene defect, which if you have, if you go to an operation and take the wrong kind of anesthesia, it activates your heating mechanism, it becomes hypothermic, and usually it leads to your death. So the way around it is to know you have this variant, and then there are certain classes of anesthetics you just don't ever take. So it saves your life totally if you know the variant. So there are 82 of these kinds of things that people can do. A second thing is There are probably several hundred different genes now whose variants block your ability to effectively use given drugs. And this is called pharmacogenomics. And there are a list of probably 
10 or 20 of these variants where the data are utterly unequivocal that if you have that variant, you can't use that kind of drug. This is really an important thing to give to your doctor because he can quickly check any time you use relevant drugs to see whether you're in that position or not. And another area is this area of what are called rare variants, rare diseases, of which 7,000 have been described. And these are single gene defects that actually can cause a disease either early or much later in your life. And obviously, if you know you have the defect as early as possible, you can begin to think about preventive measures that you can use to avoid these kind of things. And then the final category is these 150 polygenic scores that lead to your ability to know genetic risk for all the common diseases. And as Nathan described, the high-risk people will be treated differently from the low-risk people. The LDL example is a beautiful example of that. There are a lot of actionable possibilities out there. And Phenome Health, this nonprofit I'm talking about, is actually talking with two big healthcare systems. And the first proposal we're making is they get into the genomic actionable possibilities that can give so much benefit in different directions to their patients and so forth. And we hope within a five to 10 year time, all of these things will be available for every single patient. And some you may want to know about, but your doctor should know about all of these things. To your question of what do we get wrong in genomics? And this you know, is really a central aspect of what we call scientific wellness, but is the notion that I think the genome from the early days was really missold to the public because of this huge focus on disease. And so the genome was presented to the public as a sort of crystal ball that would tell you how you were most likely to die, because all of our genetics are Alzheimer's genetics, diabetes genetics, and so forth. Like a good example of this, there's a Native American tribe outside of the Seattle area and they've been studied in papers because they have, quote, diabetes genes. Now, they, of course, don't have diabetes genes. They have genes that are adapted well to their natural lifestyle. And so the point is that the genome is not about telling you how you're going to die. It's about telling you how you should live and how your body operates at its best. And so if you focus on wellness, we want to flip around this notion that the genetics that we understand in the scientific community are mostly about disease, but that's only because that's how we've studied them. But what it actually is, it's the code that keeps you alive. It's the code that, you know, it encodes your development and all these processes that are operating fairly miraculously on you every day that you stay alive and the ability that you have. We want to refocus and just shift that notion what does the genome tell us about life and about your life and about how you can optimize your path of health in the context of understanding your own body? That's what we want is the same rigor of science brought to understanding the genome from a wellness perspective as we've done from a disease perspective. Your genome are basically the instructions for developing your body and growing and in a general sense becoming who you are. But two things really impact the genome. 
your own life decisions about how you behave, your eating, your exercise, all of those things, and your environment. Your environment can have an enormous impact on your health. And the analogy I think is really neat is a composer writes a hymn or a piece of music, and that's something that musicians can read. But when musicians play the music, they add spirit and dimensional dimensionality and vivaciousness and passion to it. So the really important thing in music is the two being put together and realizing that what is really vital to good music is the passion and how you play it. And for good health, it's your behavior and your environment that enormously play on the tune of what your genome reads out for you. Having some vinegar before a meal is one of my favorite blood sugar balancing hacks that I learned from the Glucose Goddess episode of the podcast, which is still one of our most popular podcast episodes. You definitely need to listen if you haven't yet. But essentially, the acetic acid elongates the blood sugar curve so you don't feel that spike and crash. And apple cider vinegar helps you absorb more nutrients from your food. So it is a win-win. While you can, of course, just use a little vinegar in water, the main time that I am eating less blood sugar-friendly meals is when I am out at restaurants, which is where the Paleo Valley apple cider vinegar capsules come in so handy. I keep my Paleo Valley capsules in my car glove compartment, so they are always on hand. I just take one before a meal out, and it helps me feel so much better afterwards, regardless of what I eat. I also would be remiss if I didn't talk about Paleo Valley's turmeric complex. I've talked about how Zach swears by it for dealing with the knee pain that he sometimes gets from going on long runs before. He is marathon training right now, so go Zach, lots of long runs. But I honestly recommend it to pretty much anyone in my life experiencing pain. My uncle used it for back pain and it was wildly helpful, and I personally cycle in and out when my shoulder pain is acting up. Turmeric has been studied to support healthy joints, brain health, immune function, and cardiovascular function, and it's an amazing, effective way to combat chronic inflammation, one of the things that often causes us pain. It's also super important that turmeric is consumed with black pepper and fat to increase its bioavailability, and Paleo Valley's turmeric complex has organic black pepper and coconut oil in each capsule, along with three other powerful anti-inflammatories ginger, rosemary, and cloves for the maximum synergistic response. Both of these complexes have no fillers, no binders, no preservatives, and are made with all organic ingredients and just a veggie capsule. They're also third-party tested, which is something I always look for in supplements as extra assurance of their quality. I always recommend looking for supplements for your specific needs at any given moment and needs change. So definitely explore Paleo Valley's site. They have a ton of incredibly high quality options for supplements and more, including a new electrolyte drink that is so tasty and well-formulated and bars and grass-fed meat sticks that are perfect for snacking on the go. If you would like to check out the turmeric complex, the apple cider vinegar complex, or any of Paleo Valley's other amazing products, Head over to paleovalley.com slash Liz Moody for 15% off your first order. That's paleovalley.com slash Liz Moody for 15% off your first order. I started hearing about colostrum a year or so ago, and I got so many messages from all of you. Was it hype? Was it worth it? I am super cautious about any recommendations that I give you, so I wanted to do a deep dive into the research and try it myself, which I've been doing for the past six months. 
And I'm happy to say that I was really pleasantly surprised by what I found. First of all, if you're like, what is colostrum? It is the first nutrition we receive in life, and it contains all of the essential nutrients our bodies need in order to thrive. The brand I tried is Armra Colostrum, and they're definitely the highest quality one that exists. The reason I wanted to try it was for my allergies. I am allergic, unfortunately, to my fur daughter, Bella, which does not stop me from cuddling her during most of my waking life, and there's really interesting research about how colostrum can help. Essentially, it reduces the pro-inflammatory cytokines that can cause allergic reactions, and a number of studies show that it helps protect and heal your gut and help feed your microbiome, both of which have downstream positive impacts on allergies. I've personally seen a huge difference in my itchy eyes, my stuffiness, and all of that, which is a huge win for me. And if you suffer from gut issues on their own, obviously that research would point to it being helpful there. It also has been shown to fight viral and bacterial infections in the gut, which is great for travel, but just also if you feel like anything is off and you want to create a better state of balance. There's also great research around its ability to regulate your immune system And that inflammation regulation will have so many other impacts, including helping with skin health, helping with energy, and more. Armor Colostrum is a sustainably sourced colostrum concentrate that harnesses over 400 living bioactive nutrients. While most colostrums undergo heat pasteurization, Armor Colostrum uses proprietary cold chain biopotent technology that preserves the integrity of the bioactive nutrients to guarantee the highest potency and bioavailability of any colostrum on the market. Armor Colostrum also sources their colostrum from grass-fed cows from their co-op of dairy farms in the USA, and they strictly source only the surplus supply of colostrum after calves are fully fed, which was so important to me. Armor Colostrum goes through extensive auditing and third-party testing to ensure their colostrum meets the highest bar of purity and efficacy, which includes being certified glyphosate-free. If any of that sounds good to you, we've worked out a special offer for my audience. Receive 15% off your first order. Go to tryarmra.com slash Liz M or enter Liz M to get 15% off your first order. That's T-R-Y-A-R-M-R-A dot com slash Liz M. I love that. Okay, I have one more quick question I'm going to ask and then I have a quick fire that we'll get into. It occurs to me as we are talking about all this stuff that a huge part of the equation is having a doctor who is well-educated, well-versed in these things who can kind of help work with you on this journey. And it sounds like you guys have a lot of faith that that education is certainly coming down the pipeline and in 10, 20 years, we'll have a different world of doctors. But right now in this moment, do you have any advice for finding somebody who can provide you with the closest thing to scientific wellness care? So there's increasing number of physicians that I think you can interface with that will do personalized medicine or functional medicine. If you can find a really good functional medicine doctor, they'll dive in on a lot of these things. We have worked with a number of partners. There are certain telehealth companies like this. Wild Health is one that we work with quite a lot uh, that has a couple of really good physicians who founded that. They've got, uh, I think, a nationwide telehealth group. There's a whole bunch of different practices that are growing up that are pushing these kind of things forward. And then the other thing I'll say is there's also just a lot you can do from a consumer standpoint if you're able to access that. And you just want to make sure that you're finding good sources where there's excellent scientists behind them and they're you know working with physicians, they've got good medical officers and all those kind of elements. But if you can find that, then you can supplement and understand quite a lot about what's happening in your health in addition to what 
you know, your healthcare practitioner will understand and buy into because a lot of these things, genomes and microbiomes and a lot of these opportunities are fairly new. There's a study, it's a little bit old now, but they did an analysis of when we knew something was true in biology and it actually impacted medicine. And the average time lag is 17 years. So we're a little bit slow on uptake sometimes on these things. In our book, The Art of Wellness, the last chapter has, I think, a whole series of recommendations about what you as an individual can do to optimize your health. And it would be worth looking at that if you're really serious about it. Absolutely. We've talked about a lot of tests and a lot of things you can do as a consumer. If you were to narrow it down to maybe two to three, including like get a wearable, get this blood test, get DNA testing, what would you say are your top ones that the average consumer, we're not rich, we don't have all the time in the world, but we want to take care of our health. What should we do? The ones that I would recommend are gut microbiome. Like I mentioned before, I think is a really useful one. I do think getting a basic genetic test just to kind of know what your risk profiles look like, and that's something you can do at one time point, right? It's not dynamically changing. I think that that is important. And then monitoring the blood is certainly important. So there are panels. Thorn does panels. Inside Tracker does panels. Your doctor might do panels. Like there's different places you can get them from. But having kind of a comprehensive view that you go into maybe once a year or so, and just understand like what are the next things that I should be optimizing and working on and tying that together. And as we move forward, I think we're going to be able to tie more and more of these things together so that you're getting an integrated view and even being able to deliver that back to people through you know AIs and digital twins and all these things that uh, we have under development that will give super highly personalized uh, insights as you go along. And having that baseline for yourself is so valuable because then as you're getting older, you actually know what your body looked like when you were younger and fitter and so forth. Are there specific things you would call out that should be on those panels? Because I know a lot of doctors aren't testing vitamin D. They aren't testing cortisol. Can you name a few things that you think are especially important to include? ApoB is a really important one for cardiovascular health. That I would put way up there. Vitamin D is related to so many different processes related to dementia, as I mentioned before. That connection is a little stronger than appreciated generally. I would definitely put that on there. Certainly the lipids with the caveat that, you know, getting genetic testing along with that's going to make that a lot more impactful. Certainly some of the just the basics are important. Your CBC and your metabolic profiles are very important. Metabolic health is probably the biggest factor. And along those lines, if people want to look it up, we did just publish a paper on biological BMI in nature medicine a few weeks ago. There's kind of a new analysis if people want to look at that kind of information. But those are some of the things that I'd put on the panel. The two biggest factors for biological aging, at least in how we did it, were DHEA, this baseline measure of hormones, and hemoglobin A1C right, for metabolic health. So those are essential as well. Those kind of things are really helpful. I'd love to just get your perspective on somebody if they were currently dealing with some of these diseases that were experiencing credible advancements down the line. But like right now, if somebody had an autoimmune disease, is there something that you would do differently if you were them? Autoimmune diseases are certainly amongst the toughest that are out there you'd want to look at doing some sort of comprehensive profile so you can get a sense for what might be really being affected 
so you can find it because often autoimmune diseases are so tricky to nail down in terms of what's actually being affected. There are new companies. I don't know to what extent they've got consumer products out there, but companies like Adaptive Biotechnology, certainly in the science space, is doing things like being able to sequence all of the antibodies that your body has made. The ability to try to nail down like what might be driving your autoimmunity, at least in the science realm, is way more advanced now than it was just a few years ago. So searching around to see how much that may have percolated out there into the world uh, where you might be able to get something like that. Short of that, though, also just lowering chronic inflammation can be helpful to not be just as elevated so that your autoimmunity like triggers less often. That's really important, too. There are two techniques that are really going to transform autoimmunity. One is the ability to take a blood draw and to look at 5,000 white blood cells by single cell analysis. And that lets you define each type of blood cell and their state of development. And this allows us to look at innate immunity and adaptive immunity, the two major types of immunity. And we're learning they're much more complicated than we ever thought before, but we're also getting insights on how to regulate that balance and optimize it in health and in disease. That's one very big opportunity. I think the second thing is our ability to measure accurately and rapidly changing metabolic states is going to give us deep insights into long-term innate inflammation and insights and how we might manipulate that. There's some very promising new approaches that are going to be used. And then finally, we can actually look at hundreds of different antibodies in your blood to see whether they're antibodies against your own components. And we can identify the things against which your autoimmune reactions are occurring. And again, think about rational ways we can avoid those antibodies coming up in the future or that we can selectively destroy the antibodies that are against your own self. And then I just want to touch really briefly on cancer. I would love to know, one, if you had cancer right now, what you might do that the average person might not be aware or think to do. And then I would also love to know a little bit about cancer coming down the line. I've heard at least that progress we made from the mRNA vaccines during the pandemic is going to completely change how we treat cancer in like five to 10 years. So I'd love to hear about what you see as the future of cancer treatment and what you would do differently right now in this moment if you had cancer. What's going to fundamentally change cancer in the future are two really important things. In the shorter term, immunotherapy, that is the ability in really diverse ways to activate your own immune system to attack your own cancer cells and be highly specific, is the ideal theoretical approach to it. Right now, we have immunotherapies for cancers like melanoma that in most cases can totally cure them, but we have other cancers where that's not effective because in a variety of ways, the tumors are very effective at blocking off the immune system. We're making enormous progress on how to remove those blocks for many tumors and how to be able to activate 
highly specifically the immune system. So if I had cancer, the first thing I do is look deeply into immunotherapy and whether that offers any kind of opportunity in the future. The second thing is I told you earlier that we can detect the transition to cancer anywhere from one to four years before you ever get it. And I think the molecules that allow us to do the detection will tell us downstream what the kind of cancer is. So we'll be able to design therapies that will attack it at its earliest, simplest state. And perhaps the best of those therapies will be immunotherapy. We can use your immune system and attack the tumor when it's at a very small and very simple state really effectively. And my guess is that in a 10 to 20-year period, we can entirely eliminate cancer if this optimistic view of what's happening. Now, I know Nixon said that back in 1975, and we're not there yet. But I think there is hope for real optimism in the future. The only thing I'll add is that the connection is this notion that you can identify these very specific signals or characteristics of tumor cells, because your body clears cancer cells all the time. But the ones that grow into tumors are because it has escaped it. So this notion that you could take those features, program it back either with what's called a cancer vaccine to teach it to go ahead and kill those cancer cells, or with a technology that was developed by one of Lee's uh, best and oldest friends at Stanford, uh, Irv Weissman. Basically, it's a program where you go in, it recognizes certain features of a cancer cell, and it sticks up a protein, which he calls an eat me signal which again is just a signal to the immune system to come and clear them out. Like I'm very excited about the immunotherapy area. The big challenge there is it only affects a very small percentage of cancers currently, and some of the approaches are super expensive. When they first came out, it was like a million and a half bucks to get these done. But what I love is that it is an inflection point. You never use the cure word in cancer, but these immunotherapies, when they really hit, they make a huge difference very quickly. So I'd much rather have this super effective therapy that we've got to figure out how to make cheaper and apply to more cancers as opposed to what we had before, which is just this devastating kill every fast growing cell in your body with chemotherapy, have a race between you dying and the cancer and hope that you win. We've moved into a much better area. We've got to expand it. We've got to make it cheaper. Those are much better problems to have than what we used to have. And really push the prevention. I want to push the idea that in the end, that may be the final solution. I love that. Can you each leave us with just one homework assignment, something that everyone listening can do the moment they stop listening to this podcast to begin to transition themselves into the future of wellness? If you have a health issue or if you don't and you're concerned or you want to learn, is to take your first step into Kind of the journey of learning deeply about your body, whether that be a microbiome test or a blood test or your genome, choose the one that is you know, of interest to you. This whole process of just learning about how your body operates, how you're unique, what's different about you at a molecular level, it's a really cool chance to do that. And we haven't had it around for so long. Choose your first step and take a step forward on that front. I love that. Can you guys just tell me a little bit in your own words about your amazing book and why everybody should run out and buy it today? The book attempts to make a very simple proposition 
the idea with the data-driven health that we can follow your health trajectory and we can continually optimize your health directory so you are what you have the potential to be. And this will give you a health span that equals your lifespan. That is, you'll move hopefully into your 90s or even your 100s, healthy, active, mentally alert, physically capable, all of those kind of things. But it does, on the other side, raise really interesting psychological and sociological problems. What happens to retirement? What keeps you alive for an extra 20 or 30 years where you could be very productive? And I think a key is joy and passion and happiness. And the best thing you can do is be committed to doing something that makes a difference in the world. And it can make a small difference or it can make a big difference, but it can be a wonderful motivating factor. Well, I could talk to you guys forever, but... I so appreciate you taking the time to join me today and to share all of this incredible information. I'm certainly excited about the present and the future of wellness. So I really appreciate you all, you sharing this information with us and with the world. Thanks so much, Liz. Great to be with you. It's been a pleasure, Liz. This episode blew my mind. It also made me feel really hopeful for the future of healthcare, like we're finally focusing on how to prevent disease and live as healthy a life as possible before we are in crisis. And also there's so much that we can do now to start impacting all of these things. I know that you're going to want to share this episode with so many people just so you can talk about this stuff and be like, this is the future. I've predicted the future. So just a friendly reminder that sharing the podcast is truly the best way to support it. And it is so, so appreciated. I see all of those messages from you telling me about putting on your company Slack, about all your friends you texted. And I see all of our most shared on Spotify, which is absolutely wild. There's hundreds of thousands of podcast episodes that go live every single week. So when we're in the top, top, top sliver of most shared on there, I'm just like, oh, it gives me a warm, fuzzy feeling. So friendly reminder to share and just a big, big, big thank you from me for all of the people who are doing that. And if you did love this episode, I'd be so grateful if you would write a quick rating or review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. It's hugely helpful for other people deciding whether to listen to the podcast. I know when I'm about to listen to a new podcast, I go to the reviews and I scroll through and I'm like, what are people saying about this podcast? Like, what am I going to get here? So I appreciate that hugely as well. If you are new here, welcome. I am so happy that you're here. Make sure that you're following the podcast on whatever platform you like to listen on. Just go to the main podcast page. That's the one that lists all of the Healthier Together episodes, the soon-to-be Liz Moody episodes, the Liz Moody podcast episodes. Oh my gosh. So exciting. You're going to see the word follow under the logo on Spotify. And then there's a little follow with a plus sign button on the top right of that same page on Apple Podcasts. And if you hit that button, if you hit that follow button, all of the new episodes will show up right in your feed so you will never miss out on one. And we have some incredible episodes coming up, including one that offers a new way to heal from trauma and one that will make you rethink everything that you know about productivity and time management. So make sure that you're following so you do not miss out. Okay, I love you. And I'll see you next Wednesday on the next episode of what is now officially the Liz Moody Podcast.
Okay, you know what stat blows my mind? People in the U.S. take about 20,000 breaths per day and spend an average of 90%, 90% of their time indoors. And that indoor air can be up to 100 times more polluted than outdoor air, according to the EPA. Indoor air pollutants can cause respiratory symptoms like sneezing, congestion, scratchy throat, and even more serious health problems like lung and heart disease. I talked about this with a world-famous doctor friend years ago, and I was like, it is awful. What do I do? And she said, you need a high-quality air purifier, and you need to keep one in any room that you spend a ton of time in, which is why I am so excited to introduce you to Air Doctor. Air Doctor goes above and beyond the HEPA standard, which requires that 99.97% of particles at 0.3 microns be captured by a filter. Air Doctor uses an ultra-HEPA filter that was independently tested and proven to remove at least 99.99% of particles as small as 0.003 microns. That is 100 times smaller than the HEPA standard. This includes allergens, pollen, pet dander. For any other pet parents who are allergic to their babies, this makes the biggest difference in my allergies with Bella. Highly recommend for that alone. This includes dust mites, mold spores, and even bacteria and viruses. Also, if you live somewhere that is coming up on potential fires this summer, please, please, please get an air doctor so you have it ready. Breathing in smoke is awful for your lungs. And as somebody who lives in California, it gives me such peace of mind that I have my air doctor ready to go. We have a few, but if you are starting with one, keep it in the bedroom. That way you're breathing great air for at least a third of your life and it'll help you get better sleep, which will have so many downstream positive effects. And as a little bonus extra, it has such a nice white noise sound. It actually helps me fall asleep and stay asleep. Air Doctor comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee, so if you do not love it, just send it back for a refund minus shipping. Head to airdoctorpro.com and use promo code LizMoody, and you'll receive up to $300 off air purifiers. And this part is exclusive to LizMoody podcast listeners. You will receive a free three-year warranty on any unit, which is an additional $84 value. Lock in this special offer by going to A-I-R-D-O-C-T-O-R-P-R-O dot com and use promo code Liz Moody.